Holly Knoll, host of the Everyday Entrepreneur Podcast. If you've always wanted to start a business and don't know where or how to start, you've come to the right place. After leaving an unfulfilling corporate career, I decided it was time to start a business of my own. Today, I'm a business coach and creator of The Consultant Code, where I help people start services-based businesses in 60 days or less. So grab your latte because you're about to be inspired, armed with knowledge, and given simple tools to start a business of your own from my interviews with Everyday Entrepreneurs. Welcome to the Everyday Entrepreneur Podcast, Morgan. Thank you so much for being here today. I am like over the moon and super excited to talk to you about some brand new topics that I really haven't shared here on the podcast before. So thanks for being here. And thanks for having me. Excited to discuss them with you. Yes. Yes. Well, let's first start. Let's first start out with learning a little bit about you, your career so far, where you where you are right now, but what got you here. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and how you got here? Sure. Yeah. So I started my career thinking I wanted to be a cutting edge physician. So I thought that was going to be in like heart and lung transplant. And I did my first internship at college and quickly learned I like people a little too much for like super hard, like cutting edge science and a lot of like, unfortunately, death and things like that that would occur. So great internship, learned a lot. But one of the things that in particular I saw is there's like a lot of really cool innovation that exists that is trying to help people and has a huge impact but is not dealing with some of the heavy day-to-day things that might have occurred with, you know, that type of a specialty in, in science. And so I got into med tech. And so med tech is designing devices primarily for humans. And they either make physicians' lives better or ideally, you know, patients and helping them have better outcomes. I have been fortunate that I knew that was kind of my niche, if you will, as I mentioned, since college. So I started working for my first startup in this space before I even graduated. And and I went to Stanford in undergrad, so it was in the Bay Area. And I loved working for a startup right out of college because you get to wear a thousand hats. And it was like, what is the biggest fire today? And that was what I got to do in that day. But, you know, toward the tail end of it, I realized, okay, I've been doing engineering. I did regulatory. I did quality. I lived abroad twice to support commercialization and clinical trials. But all of this is further and further away from my engineering degree. So I went and got an MBA. And, and while I was at Northwestern for that was when I really came up with my first startup, which was a medical technology and an innovation related to cardiology. And so that's what primarily I've been doing since. I, I did do a two-year stint at Medtronic, which is what brought me to the Twin Cities, did mergers and acquisitions for them. But if you flash forward to today, I kind of have my hats in a couple things, all of which are in the med tech community. So I have two different device companies that I either co-founded or run today. I have a medical device incubator, which means there's two people that are full-time employed that partner with clinicians that are very inventive. And we kind of come up with our own ideas and just throw stuff at the wall, see what sticks and burn it down like risk-wise as cheaply and quickly as we can. And if there's something there, that becomes a company. And if there isn't, then you move on to the next one. I also started a services firm that I don't run anymore, but someone else does that is related to really all the fractional resources you need to get these ideas through, you know, all the way through the, the regulatory process. So primarily the FDA. And then lastly, I co-founded a venture fund, Engage Venture Partners. And so I would say I enjoy the diversity of my daytime job is one of those device companies and the rest are kind of things that I, I flirt with on the side. You flirt with these things on the side. Like, let's just stop here for a second. What you have been able to accomplish, if you don't mind me asking about how many, about how many years ago did you graduate from college? Just give people an idea of what you've accomplished in a very short amount of time. 
Fair enough. I graduated undergrad in 2009, so we won't say the age, but I will. I'm 35. I'll be 36 in June. And I fundraised and kind of built my first startup when I was just shy of 30. So yeah, so been able to do a lot, fortunately, in this time. That's incredible. Your your story. So for the listeners out there, I first met you when I saw you on a panel at, at a networking event here in Minneapolis, and you were one of the only women on the panel. And not only were you just one of the only women, but your story and your like clear intelligence and just composure and just, I don't know, just the way you presented yourself really, really wowed me. And I knew that after the, after the panel was over, I needed to talk to you and get to know you. And I just, I'm just so incredibly, you know, impressed by what you've done. You know, you've two device companies, a medical device incubator, services firm that you no longer are part of or you don't run. And you also co-founded a venture venture fund. That's just that's just so much in a short amount of time. So tell us a little bit about like some people it takes them a lifetime to to create a company. And how do you how do you figure out like you make it sound so easy, but how do you have a system or a way that you've been able to kind of replicate what you learned the first time and carry that forward? Or how do you manage to accomplish so much? That's a lot there. So just, yeah, no, I'll unpack a couple angles of it, but I just had this conversation with, with another friend that also had a couple businesses and he just had the most beautiful analogy that I have to share it. So your first company is like having your first kid. Right. And you're like, I don't know what the heck I'm doing. I hope I don't kill it. You know, like I got to feed it. I got to clothe it. Like, what, what do I do? It's crying. Like, is he sick? Is he not? Or why the sun? So the he, but you know, are they sick or not sick? And then you have your second. And the second you're like, okay, I'm not a complete idiot. I've managed to get a kid to a certain point. Right. And I kind of know the gist of some of these things, but that kid might be different in different ways. And so I'll learn how to adjust and adapt. And so I do think that it's a really great analogy for, kind of the fear of the unknown and learning as you go, but yet knowing other people have done it and done it successfully. So it's not dissimilar from, you know, hey, I call my my other friend that's a mom that's, a, you know, her son is about six months older than mine. I'm like, have you seen this before? The same things happen in entrepreneurship too. So for me, I think the first one was really around, there was a lot to learn and a lot I would have done differently in hindsight, but that's part of the process. And I at least was very deliberate with the first of trying to put people around me that I call the phone of friends, you know, I think it's really important to have that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, the second one, I would say, you know, I, I iterated and evolved and kind of looked at some of those a little bit differently, but the core thesis being the same of surround yourself with people that have the battle scars that you will have one day, right. That can help influence it. And then to your point directly, like probably one of the most common questions I get asked is how do you do it all? Delegation, delegation, delegation. And so I'll use mm-hmm. the, like the cliche proverb, but like, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Right. And I think that's a really good premise of a lot of what we built, which is the services firm that I own. But I, again, someone else runs that. I tap the same kind of core individuals from that across a couple of the different companies. I also have, you know, the person that actually runs that services firm consult and help in a couple companies as well. And so for me, part of it has been not only having a great you know, second layer, if you will, of people I trust and can delegate to, but also there is synergy across the things I'm working on, both an idea and technology, but also the core fundamental teams, which means that we don't have to spend time all learning the same language every time, you know, or same cadence or any of that. It's just kind of, 
we've gotten the, the operational workflows down enough to where a new idea on top isn't quite so daunting now that the kind of system is a well-oiled machine. I think you said that, I think you just said a keyword, you've systematized this as much as you can. It sounds like, you know, and, and I, I really appreciate the art of a system. My clients hire me to come up with systems for them, systems and processes and how to make things efficient that you don't need to spin on forever. You learn it once, you you create a process, you recognize it, it's done. So then you can think about harder things. That totally makes sense to me. I think the other thing that you said is just the delegation piece and the art of delegation and and knowing that you don't have to do it all or you don't have to do it all and take it all on and and nor necessarily are founders or, or or is anyone the best person to do all the things you know we have different skill sets we're good at certain things not so good and so knowing when and where to delegate 100% tell me just a little bit about you know um the the way that you you know, you phone a friend, like, how do you, how do you build your, how do you find your people in your, in your community, that business community or, or personal, whoever it is that you phone, how do you, how do you decide, like, I, I want, I need this person to, to help me out with this thing. I'm going to call this person. How do you kind of decide who you want to bring in and and how do you evaluate who, who those phone friends are? Yeah, I would say, I think it's, probably one of the hardest things to do, but yet also I would say one of my strengths is in the recognition of like the network effect and kind of who who you can go for what particular thing. And, and to be fair, some of it is trial and error. I'd love to tell you that I knew the correct person for all the answers the first time through, but you know, let's say that I have a question and I it's specific to a very nuanced thing. You know, I might try to ask somebody that I just met and see what their thoughts are, but if I don't know them well enough to thousand percent trust their response yet, I'll find someone else and ask them the same question too. And then, hey, if these things start to align, then I'm like, oh, okay, like this is the right answer. We've gotten a couple data points now. And so I hedge my bets a bit. And candidly, when you're earlier on, it kind of is a little bit more expensive too when you have to do that both in time and in like paid Yeah. For example, there's like, you could ask your lawyer and your lawyer probably knows the answer on some of those things for sure, but it's going to cost you, you know, four fifty, anywhere to $1,200 an hour, depending on your lawyer versus once you realize, and actually I'll give a great example of this. One of my first companies I started, we went through this whole debate of, you know, do we want to form what type of entity structure? Is it going to be a C corporation or an LLC? I don't want to tell you how much money I spent with the lawyer, not my current lawyer, my, my lawyer at the time, figuring that question out. And then later I found someone that was like, oh, it's this and for these reasons. And then like, it was probably a 30 second discussion made complete sense. You know, no brainer. I to learn the hard way a few times, but first of all, then I learned I trust that person. I also have a different lawyer than I had in the first place in that, in that previous company. So. Yes, it's a ton of trial and error when you first start out. Mm-hmm. And, and you're right. Like when you're first starting out, you don't have like money to really like make mistakes like the mistakes right. are a little bit more painful because your money is a little bit more limited i've definitely been in that position where i've hired people who are the experts or you know even owned a friend or you know picked brains and you know generously people giving time to let me do that but uh, i think what you said is key like identifying themes across you know if you're going to go get a second opinion from a doctor or a third or whatever what are the themes you know across the board how can you kind of take in your own wisdom and experience how can you right. balance kind of a, a bunch of different thoughts to make the right decision i think so often though i see people completely outsourcing advice and just blindly accepting it and then and then that that also doesn't always play out so well if 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 you don't kind of weigh weigh in what too often we discount maybe what we might already know ourselves. 
Well, to be fair, like I think all this ultimately comes down to trust a bit too with your advisors as well. So like, it's not unlike a friend where like, if my best friend is like, you will love this person, you have to trust them. I trust that, right? Because they, yeah. I know them, I know they know me or whatever the challenge is. And it's not dissimilar from when you go to someone for expertise. If I ask a very, someone I trust and highly regard, hey, I need someone that has expertise in blank thing and they give a really warm intro, you know, I'm going to take that information in a different way than if I Google searched and randomly cold emailed a firm that might be, you know, providing that same expertise. So some of that is you kind of have to have that quick filter as well of like, how well can I trust this information source? Because we don't have the time all day to sit there and, you know, every question I can't validate a thousand times, right? But no, if I can figure out the important ones and the ones that I don't have as much confidence in quickly, then I've now saved everybody a lot of time and money. Yep. Yep. A hundred percent. One thing I just want to go back to really quick was the baby analogy. And I think you, I, I, I meant to go back to that and then I got caught up in like the phone of friend and how do you, how, how do you know who to ask for advice? But sure. I, I love what you said is just giving that analogy around like your first company, you're like doing everything for the first time, you know, and it's a lot of trial and error. The second one, you take your lessons learned, you apply it, you probably know where to stress out, where not to stress out, what's a big deal versus not. You just have more of that wisdom and experience under your belt so that you can confidently move through creating a second company. So I think looking at it that way and looking at everything you've done, clearly you've been able to apply what you learned in a previous company and and have built on top of that and on top of that and on top of that. So I, I love that. And I think for people that are considering starting another company, if the first one didn't go the way they wanted or they sold it, moved on, did whatever, I think the, what, the learnings that we get from that first time around are just so invaluable and and shouldn't stop us from from trying again too. Well, and candidly, like you learn a lot more from your failures than you do your successes. Totally. And so, you know, the stuff that stuck with me, even in, in situations that went great, right? Like you're, you're going to always like zoom in on the things that didn't go well. Like that's, I think a little bit of human nature, but you're not going to repeat that. You know what I mean? Or nope. you're going to do your best not to do that same thing again. So to your point, even, even if it's a, you know, a painful one, I mean, often, often that's a great thing. You know, you're going to yeah. learn and, and adapt. It sucks in the moment. And it, it you know, it's, it can be like, you know, we all know we've all, everybody's made mistakes, but yeah, mistakes are the way we learn. And, and those are the lessons that often stick, stick the deepest because it, mm-hmm. we don't want to experience that pain again, or, you know, the, the hardship. So yeah, thank you for sharing. I want to move just a little bit into your venture capital work, you know, at the, at the networking conference, one thing that you said that really stood out to me was, and and feel free to correct me if I got this wrong or if I didn't, if it, this was what I heard, but you said something about, it was important for you to start this, this initiative because you were in an industry where you didn't see anyone else that really looked like you, meaning a woman, you can expand further on what that means for you, but why don't you just tell the listeners out there just a little bit about why you started your firm, what it does, and maybe before that, even just back up to like, what is venture capital for those that that might not know? Sure. Yeah. I'll start with the definition, then we can kind of certainly work our way through there. But uh, venture capital is typically a company that takes funding from others, so often institutional or high net worth individuals or whoever that might be. And it actually helps take their cash and invest it into specific companies. 
And it's all about risk return. So, you know, in addition to investing in those companies, you either would get the promise of equity in the form of something like convertible debt, for example, or actually equity in the company. And then the whole being that, you know, when that company eventually has a sale to another company or goes public or some sort of event that provides liquidation, you know, that company or that, sorry, those proceeds come back to the venture capital firm and then, you know, hopefully has a nice return. Um, very quickly on venture capital, there's a couple different stages in which, you know, that those types of funds can play. And it's all about like what stage of company you're looking at and the size of funds that people might raise. So much, much larger and later stage tends to be called private equity versus kind of that middle or even series A as venture capital. And then if you're really, really in early, it's probably more in what would be considered seed or angel funding. Um, and I say that only to lay the landscape of where I started and why, and then, and then we'll kind of expand from there. But when I went to fundraise for the first time, it's not uncommon that before you raise real money from somebody else that you don't know, you often start with your friends and family and kind of that close network and you sort of put the hat out, see who's interested or not. And typically those are smaller dollars, but that's your seed or angel round. For me getting started, if you go where you know, right, you kind of want to be in a network or with people that have money that are able to invest. Being young and female, so I was I was just shy of 30 and I had just moved to, or no, I was still in, in the Twin Cities or I can't remember if I was an internship or not, but anyway, around Chicago, Minnesota area. And I went to go fundraise for the first time and none of the people looked like me. And so I had to network really hard to get in front of people that didn't know me at all to then make the pitch because of the fact that I just didn't have those friends in my circle. And I mean, you know, most people sub 30 don't have a hundred thousand dollar checks to deploy. Right. So, yeah. I mean, so, you know, part of me was like, all right, you figured it out. You got it done, which I did. Thankfully we, we finished that fundraising round and you know, that one's still around and doing just fine. But you know, one of the things that I often, you know, try to ponder is, how do you fix it, right? And I think for me, the biggest thing was put your money where your mouth is. So the first iteration of that I did was taking friends, we pooled capital together and we put it into a investment company. that sole purpose was just to deploy it into other companies. So at that time, and I should mention this very briefly, so the way that traditional venture capital is structured is that they take a one-time fee and then they do what's called carried interest. So that's how venture capitalists make most of their money is carried interest. And the way that works is that if I as an investor invest a dollar and then let's say that I get my dollar back, but I also made a dollar, 20% of that dollar goes to the venture fund and the 80% goes to the investor. So for every kind of profit they make, they're, share, they're splitting that 80-20. That's a standard approach, there's a lot of iterations of that. And then the fee structure that they do annually is usually how they pay their salary. When we first started the funds or, or our first kind of investment vehicle, no one was looking to profit off of it because we were all putting in our own money, right? So like it wasn't structured such that anyone got paid or anyone got a disproportionate amount of a carried interest, for example. Um, but for me, like it was, let me find people that look like me and get us all to start dipping the toe in the water. So it was 10 individuals, all under 40, all of which had medical technology backgrounds. So there was like clinicians, there was a patent attorney, there was like a PhD in mechanical engineering, like someone in marketing. And we just kind of pulled our thinking and our thoughts and our network to then decide what to invest and whatnot. That actually, I think, got me a little bit more confident in early stage investing. So I like doing earlier, smaller things because they're often harder to do. Like you just have less data, right? Like you don't, mm. any company around long enough is going to have more and more information to provide you for you to decide if that's a good company or not, right? Like 
investing in Apple has X amount of years of <laughs> stock performance history, right? That you can then yeah. figure out roughly what this looks like versus, you know, a brand new company you've never heard of. It's a lot harder to make those decisions. But I think because it's harder, there's a lot more upside in it too, if you can do it well. Mm-hmm. So then that kind of group has expanded and kind of morphed into the venture fund that I had, which was basically with the same thesis of let's invest in a similar way, but now we're taking people's money that are not our own to help deploy that. And then with the kind of more of a traditional structure of taking carried interest off the top. So my own bets are now going a little bit further with hopefully some upside for myself as well. Okay. What what happens if the companies that you guys invest in fail or just go under? Is your money gone? Is is it like, okay, well, let's start over. Let's go back to the fund. What what happens? <laughs> Yeah. So gross generalization here, let's acknowledge it up up front. Okay. Mm -hmm. In med tech in particular, things are usually a little more binary, right? You're either goes to zero and the company folds and maybe a little bit of your money back out, but probably not much, or it sells and has an exit of some kind. And even in that instance, you may not get all your money back or hopefully get a lot of it. If you were to invest in like 10 companies arbitrarily, right? You typically need two to do really well to like offset the rest and then maybe two, three or four somewhere in there do okay. And then that all of that would more than pay for five that completely fail. Right. And this is just rough math here and not perfect, mm-hmm. but just gives you an idea that by by making the bets, you're actually kind of diversifying a portfolio so yeah. that, you know, the hope being the risk return in aggregate is going to outweigh that of if you did it in any one. Yep. Yep. That makes sense. But yes, your money's gone in the instance it, it doesn't go well. In that well, and the high risk, high rewards. <laughs> Correct. Yes. I mean, very briefly on that, like, you know, one of the deals that we just invested in, the founder's previous company sold for 22x what people fundraised at. So, you know, when we talk about risk reward, try to find that in the public markets. I mean, they exist, right. of course, but it's that's part of what you're betting on, right? Is the upside is a lot higher, granted, but the downside is a zero. Well, so this is like legal gambling? <laughs> but it's, but it's, it's a well-hedged bet, right? Because mm-hmm. the way you mitigate all of this and feel confident is it's not like you're blindly throwing money at something you don't understand. At a blackjack like you, table or something. Right. Yeah. Like you start, and by the way, there's no house that's, you know, betting against you, right? So like yeah. in this instance, I started in the area I knew, right? With the network I knew because I knew med device. I understood the, the nuance of it. I had a good network of clinicians that I could, you know, again, phone a friend and be like, hey, cardiologist, what do you think of this thing in this space? Like, does this make sense to you? And so it's not like you're kind of picking out of out of the blue. You're spending a lot of time in a space you hopefully know well enough to make a good bet in. So how did you learn how to, like, does one just Google how to start a VC fund or how to how to be a venture capitalist? Like, how did you learn and how did you, you know, given this is the first fund you started and, it, you know, it, it is a, a business model, but like, how did you learn, like, what to do? How did you spin this up? And, and you kind of walked through some of the steps, but I guess just like, how did you know you were doing it right? Yeah, something I glossed over very quickly. But when I worked in the one large company I worked in for two years was at Medtronic. And I did mergers and acquisitions for them and basically spent all that time working on buying, valuing companies and figuring out what made good business sense strategically and financially for that company. So 
So number one, that was my background. I will also mention, and it is very important to say, I have three other fantastic founders of the fund, co-founders, I should say, in addition to myself. So I don't want to sit here and say I did that all by myself. I certainly did not. And what I love about doing something like this is that, you know, I've been very deliberate to bring skill sets that um, augment my own, one of which was one of the founders, Steve, has actually been a venture capitalist before, right? And he has also been an operator. And so what's great is, he is my phone to friend for like some of these mechanics. <laughs> and then you have the attorneys that help you figure out how you structure this stuff. And then, you know, some of my mentors, I'm f- fortunate, have had time in both venture and operating companies. So then I ask them a bunch of questions. And so I didn't learn it overnight, but I also didn't do it alone, um, both mm-hmm. from a mentorship perspective and a partnership perspective. Back to your earlier comment, if you want to go far, go with Manny, right? If you want to go, say it again. Gonna go fast. Yeah, I gotta remember it. So if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to mm-hmm. go far, go together. Go together. Yep. I think yeah. that's a theme. This is a theme that this is clearly one of your values. So yes. what are the types of companies that that interest you guys? That you're like, yes, we we want we want to potentially fund this company. What are the things you look for? Yeah. So I'm gonna start with the venture lens, um, i.e. that company, but it is geared toward medical technology, earlier stage is better, tend to have stuff that has intellectual property. So one of the things in the businesses we operate is like, you know, this is school 101 of calling barriers to entry, right? And so for the things we like to look at, it's not only like, do you have a really cool solution that no one else has done, but like what made this so that you could protect it well. So we spent a lot of time, and as I mentioned, one of the four of us, or I haven't mentioned this, but one of the four of us is a patent attorney that specializes in med tech. So that allows us to kind of play a little bit earlier than other people. And the, the other founder that I did, co-founder I didn't mention, has experience in like more of provider systems than payer systems. So like insurance and and kind of like hospitals and things like that. So we've kind of got a nice, robust way to look at it. Very um, we like. Yes, we like early stage things. A lot of it comes through our network, through the various other hats I wear. You know, you get to know other founders with cool ideas. And that's part of what got me excited to invest in the first place as well. But yeah, we spend the time. We'll start first with kind of the market and the team and the technology. Like, does this make sense? Is it something different? Why do we think this team is going to win? Like, is this team, like any startup is going to have, it's not a straight line, right? Like there's peaks and valleys. And a lot of what you try to tease out of those earlier conversation is, can this person like take it when times are tough and like figure it out? And, you know, if because nothing is as you anticipate it, something will come up that goes wrong. I don't know what it is, but it'll be something. And so you try to tease out like a lot of it is just betting on the team of like, can they get it? Have they done it before? You know, what gives you the confidence they've got that kind of grit to get it done? And then once we kind of see that that's, you know, the early check boxes are there, then we kind of go to the next level of diligence, which is usually back to my phone of friends of like getting the experts in any one of those things to weigh in much more heavily and deeply to validate assumptions or, you know, see if the needs that you think are there are truly there. And then, you know, from there, we we tend to make a, a quicker decision and off to the races. Ugh. Well, I, I love that you have a, you know, obviously the evaluation process is probably very well thought out and and given the rounded out of your team, everybody comes in with a different perspective and, and can probably spot different things within the pitches that might stick out to one person, but someone else might completely miss that. So I can see how you all putting your brains together can come up with a well-rounded decision. Something you managed, mentioned just about confidence and grit and the team. This is something I always think about when I 
I have friends that have startups and I have, you know, former colleagues that have their own companies now. And, and I'm, I was, I'm always curious about how a VC measures confidence and grit and the team that is, you know, you can look at stats and data on paper, but those are like the, those are the immeasurable pieces and are highly subjective. So how do you evaluate, is this team going to make it? Are, are they, do they have that kind of winning recipe to, to get through the tough times and to really see this through? Yeah. Um, to think about this, it's a harder question, but there's a couple things that easily come to mind. One would be, do they know what they don't know? And I think, you know, in particular in medicine, for example, like a doctor is often having to make calls in gray area with confidence all the time, right? Yeah. Like, you just have to kind of make a decision or someone's life is in the balance, right? Like indecision is a decision too in that instance and like, you know, could have bad outcomes. But in the business world, I don't need them to be all of the different functions simultaneously. I need them to know when they don't know and call someone that's an expert. And so as we talk in in kind of those initial conversations, arrogance isn't the right word because I'm fine with people being confident. I think that's important. But in so much as you identify that, like if I'm a first time entrepreneur and I've never done something and I like, I'd rather they tell me they don't know the answer than to try to bullshit it, to be frank. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the things I'll, I'll kind of take a look at. The second is how scrappy or efficient have they been to date and have they hit the milestones they said they would, right? Mm -hmm. And that's sometimes harder to kind of determine because depending on the stage of company or, you know, where they have or haven't gone, you know, it, it's it's not always easy and apparent, but you can try to tease that out with some of the questioning. And then I would also say, like, have they had to pivot? Like, I actually don't view that as a negative thing. If anything, it means you're not married to your idea of being the best one out of the gate, right? Like, I wish I could tell you that I have perfectly predicted exactly what the right solution is and all these things out of the gate. I never have, right? Like, part of it is the, <laughs> well, the understanding. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I got it directionally correct, and that's the important part, right? Like, so I'm not restarting yeah. from scratch in any one of them, but like, you know, you get there, you have a good thesis of what it's going to be, but you also have to be open to the fact that, you know, you might need to kind of tweak it a bit. And so those are some of the soft stuff that you look for. But candidly, at the end of the day, there's a fair amount of gut. And I wish I could tell you that there was a the vibe. Yeah. yeah, but it, it's, it's, it's an art, not a science, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's always the a gamble, you know, even when... I'm interviewing candidates or, you know, just the, the, the soft stuff is always, is always the gamble. It's hard to measure, but I love what you said is ability to pivot. Can they be scrappy? Have they met their milestones and can they, you know, achieve their goals or, or execute on their plans? And then the confidence to not know something. I think there's always so much pressure just in the professional world alone. And I think this might be for and here I'm generalizing, but I see this more with younger people is the need to always have the answer for something and to always need to know. And I think for me personally, the older I get, the more I'm like, yeah, I don't know that. Or, you know what, done is better than perfect. And I, I don't have to know everything. And I know this and I can pull in people that would know something about that. And I know how to be resourceful and figure it out. But I think it does take a certain level of confidence, especially if you're in a high stakes situation like a pitch and, and trying to like get your dream funded to be vulnerable and say like, you know what, I, I don't know. And that's, that's a certain side of, in my opinion, that's a sign of strength. 
I would agree. And I don't know if you've seen that graph where it's basically on like the X axis is time and the Y, the y axis is like knowledge. And there's like the perception of knowledge over time <laughs> and actual knowledge over time. And they like, there's like, anyway, it's an wow. interesting. Yeah, exactly. Because over time, when you get older, your actual knowledge just goes up, but you think you know nothing, right? Like, but to your point, I mean, it's a balance too, because you can't walk in a pitch acting like you know nothing, right? Or else you have to have right. areas in which you're confident. I think you're right. It's, it's, it's a strength to show vulnerability and transparency too, because mm-hmm. if I can establish trust up front with somebody that I'm going to trust them that they know know when they say they know if they tell me when they don't know right because now i'm not sit there and second guessing everything that they had to say so yeah completely agree yeah well i feel like it would be a miss if i didn't talk about one thing in recent news so so come dally bank you know implosion what just what are your thoughts on that what does that mean for the vc industry what is your perspective just on the events that have happened and and what this means for your work and what you do to any, any sure. just generic thought, not generic, but general thoughts. You don't have to go too deep, but I'm just curious. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think people kind of right or wrong perceived like, oh, Silicon Valley Bank must be a California problem. There were a lot of companies I know of that were impacted and stressing out during that period. And granted, it all kind of landed more or less in a good spot for those. But there were a lot of venture-backed companies and venture funds that had their money tied there, some of which were Minnesota-based larger venture capitally backed companies. And so there was a lot of fear of like, can I make payroll? And banks only secure up to $250,000. So there's a lot of literature coming out being like, well, if you got $250,000, then you're okay. But you know, some of these companies had 50 million in the bank, right? Yeah, I know. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And you're like, well, when you have, you know, X number of employees, $250,000 isn't going to help me very much. No. Thankfully, that kind of resolved relatively fast, but it was stressful during that period. And it was interesting because there was a lot of dialogue of how do you influence things in home? Like literally CEOs were on a chain sharing legislators that they should talk to in Minnesota, stuff like that as ways to kind of influence if possible. But then to answer your question, like how does that impact the venture community? In general, when times are hard or the market isn't great, what ends up happening is, you know, venture funds, when they make early bets, they save some capital for follow-on investment as well, right? Because basically, if I invest in five companies, I assume some of them are going to do well and some aren't. And for the ones that are doing well, I want to bet again on them, right? Mm. Well, in the instance that times get tough, like a lot of that capital gets saved for their existing portfolio companies to make sure they survive. Right. Because otherwise all of that goes to zero in that one instance. And so people just get a little bit more tight and closer to chest, especially for new companies. And so what you see end up happening is that if I'm a new company, it's supply and demand. If there's less capital available because people are keeping it close to the chest, you see valuations come down and you see it being a little bit harder and taking a little bit longer to fundraise than it might in other environments. And so I would say that's what's happening now. We certainly are seeing that both from you know, my friends and colleagues and my own companies that are fundraising at various stages, as well as being on the venture side. Well, thank you for that. That's interesting. And that just makes it harder for the smaller companies that, that yeah. want to get through, you know, versus the ones that are bigger and thriving a little bit more. And, you know, sadly, it, it takes, I guess, lessons to, to you know, reform or to change the industry as a whole. But I, 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 I just hope this doesn't you know, for the people with dreams out there that want to get their company funded. And I hope they can go to people like you and, 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 you know, 
work with investors that are doing what you're doing that that's just seems more of a privatized approach or it's just nice yes. to know that there's there's other options for people out there as well for listeners who want to work in venture capital who are curious about it for women that are like well, how how could this sounds really cool i would love to get involved i would love to either work or participate or you know fund what are the ways people can get their feet in the door or foot in the door <laughs> Fair enough. Heel, high so, heel into the door, whatever it is. Yes, exactly. So I think from the investor side, you know, some of that is just find a fund or funds in, you know, line with your investment thesis or areas of interest, right? So for example, you can find funds that are tech focused. You can find funds that just invest in female only or, you know, minority founders or, you know, retail, whatever. So that's kind of one area of just getting exposure formally, but you're going to be a little bit further removed in that regard. There are some like crowdfunded slash angel funding groups that are more geared toward the education of, as well as just getting more exposure and more women investing, which tend to have smaller minimum check sizes, which is nice to kind of dip the toe. Yeah. Yeah. Structurally speaking, venture tends not to have, they're pretty closed, smaller teams, but like ways to get involved is you could either, if you have expertise in a space, network in and reach out and just say, hey, like, can I start helping to advise you? And this is how it could be helpful to you. So for example, and I'll just because I'm in med tech, I'm going to use a lot of medical analogies. Like if I was a orthopedic surgeon, I might reach out to some of the local funds and be like, here's what I know. I know orthopedic surgery. I have done clinical trials. You know, I have evaluated this technology and that technology in humans. I've done like cadaver work or whatever those things are, but just kind of lay out what it is you could offer them. And be upfront that maybe you give them a few hours for free, right? To establish that you know what yeah. you're doing. <laughs> yeah. But if you can build that credibility, then, you know, maybe you can become someone that they either have as a paid advisor or eventually actually see some upside in the performance of the fund more formally. And then, you know, there's always jobs as well, but those tend to be things you have to get networked into. But, you know, that could be as an analyst, that could be in finance, that could be a variety of functions. And then I would just say, what is it again, that the, the space that you're interested in, the type of role, and then just start networking with the funds that kind of align with those interests. I love it. Those are a lot of really interesting angles. In fact, I'm thinking of like where, you know, we've talked about, you know, can I come just shadow? Can I come and just see how you guys <laughs> listen to pitches? Because I'm super interested and it's something I know nothing about. Yeah. And we've talked about that. So it's just good to know that, yes, yeah, leverage your expertise, pitch yourself to a VC fund, give some time for free for the return of like learning and maybe a future opportunity. Um, and then, yeah, I, and then for, and then if, you know, for like a full-time job situation, find, you know, start the networking, you know, through through kind of the the normal channels, I guess, who you know. I, it, 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 to me, let, let me just pause on that one just to, because I feel like I was stumbling on my words for a reason. I feel like the VC world to me would feel super like intimidating, boys club, kind of closed doors. Like you kind of have to know people. Is that perception accurate from your experience is there is there like a different way someone may look look into getting more involved as as a career path yeah so i'm going to highlight some statistics to answer your question of the boys club first okay yes so deloitte human capital released a survey in 2020 and they asked 378 venture firms kind of what the makeup of their workforce was okay 45 percent of those beef VC workforces were women. So, okay, almost 50%. Cool. 
Then they started asking, well, only 23% of them are actually investment professionals. So people that are making the decisions to invest or not invest. Of that, only 16% were partners or equivalent, which would basically be like the senior level in the fund. Yeah, now, decision granted, makers. Right. Now that's up from 14% in 2018 and 11% in 2016. So we're improving, but still 16% of the decision makers. Now, another important data point is that in 2019, the Female Founders Fund released a data point that only 2.7% of venture capital funding went to female-founded businesses. So even me. if you sit there and say that they didn't do the methodology correctly, like flow of funds still widely out, out of whack for us to be landing at those numbers. So will I call it a boys club? No, because I do think the men that are in, in venture, I don't think that's a fair statement because there are people that I think are actively trying to change that to mentor, you know, to, to bring the next generation and to be more diverse. I certainly do find that to be true. But the numbers are the numbers to say that there aren't enough women in it. What do you think? Um, yeah. Where do you think this, ha like the, going from 45% of women yeah. to 16% of women as decision makers, what do you think happens to why do you think there's such a severe drop off? I wish I could tell you. I think it's not unlike the same types of things you would see in the boardroom or in Fortune 500, Fortune 100 leadership positions, right? Yep. I think we can acknowledge it's a problem, but it's also a funnel issue too. So if we don't have more women getting into it in the first place that are then moving up. So for example, if you want more people and partners, we need more than 23% of people or women, sorry, they're investment professionals, right? Well, how do you get more than that? Well, we need more people going into finance, et cetera, right? So it's kind of both a funnel, but also the recognition that we need to do more to pull others up to make this a more representative group. And I just actually had this debate not that long ago with, with a gentleman that's, that's in the med tech community of like, you know, you can set a bar to say they need to have these credentials and whatever to get there, right? And then I'm only going to let someone in a group if they've done that. Well, okay. But if you want to change it, then you need to figure out how do you let people that may not have those credentials yet, but could easily have that had if they had been given the same opportunity. And you have to be deliberate about finding and pulling that in or else you're never going to solve the funnel issue and you're never going to start, you know, writing that a bit. Make credentials accessible to people. There you yeah. go. Yeah. And, and at, in an earlier time, I, I'm just a huge believer and I've said this on this podcast before too. It, it feels to me it's almost too late when we start talking about like getting women into leadership positions once, you know, once they're in corporate America or they're in like some sort of a business, you know, environment. It, to me, it feels like what we need to start in schools and getting girls interested in STEM, getting girls interested in, in yeah, my mom was a science teacher. We were, we were, it was a daily discussion around our dinner table of science. So getting, getting women and young girls paired up with mentors to see what's possible, to see them like, to, to have them experience, like what do women do when they grow up that are a whole bunch of different things. I think it needs to start there. Talking about women in their twenties and thirties and forties. I'm like, that's great. Let's work with what we got here. But how can we like grow the pipeline to, to have even more women coming up that want to do these things in their twenties, thirties, forties? I completely agree. And I'm going to bring it up. It's a bit of a tangent, but related because I just had this discussion today. But so I coach young women in basketball and I played basketball my whole life. I played basketball at Stanford as well. 
And it was part of what, I mean, I'm a huge believer of, of like lessons learned through sport, you know, team playing, competitiveness, like not everyone's a winner, like you got to outwork people. And then other, sometimes that's just not enough because other people are going to be more naturally gifted. Like there's a number of things we could pull from that. But the young women I coach, you know, we were at a, a the national basketball tournament last year and we were sitting in a coach's meeting and it was like an hour long discussion to go over like one page of rules, which I thought were pretty straightforward. We all know basketball <laughs> by now. So I'm very bored and I'm sitting there and I counted and it was a mandatory head coaches only meeting. Okay. 10% of the room were female in an all women tournament, fourth through sixth grade national tournaments, all women's teams, 10% of the room was female. And so I just had this discussion today, which was, you know, I just had a son. I, well, I have a son who's almost one. I don't have a lot of time, right? Um, yeah. But it's important. Representation really matters. And what I want mm-hmm. these young women to see is not only like, hey, here's another woman coaching basketball who played basketball. Cool. There's lots of women that play basketball. But also, like, here's a sassy young woman who will give it back to men, have no problem with it, you know. And so it's hard. I'm not going to lie that it's tough to take the time to be in the gym with them. But I think it's part of the same thesis, which is if you have been there showing up and representing and teaching them and showing people what it looks like and what a role model is, I think is just as important as spending the time, which I'm also trying to do on creating internship programs, for example, for young women to come and coach under me. So they get an idea of what coaching looks like. And so it's not quite so scary anymore from that end too. So I use it as an example, but I think it's, you know, Sports is something we can all appreciate. And, you know, mm-hmm. there's now equal numbers of women's teams and men's teams thanks to Title IX, but that hasn't solved some of those issues yet. So even on the coaching home staff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. And you, I mean, this is a great example of you're putting your money where your mouth is. And, and it, right, like yeah. leading by example, yeah. like I care about this. I want to see, I care about the success of young women. So I'm going to go give my time in addition to running multiple companies at PC Fund, having a one-year-old son and a husband and a life, I'm and thinking of your next business ideas. I'm also going to like dedicate time because this matters. And I think that just says so much about you. So well, thank you. I appreciate um, that. Yeah. Yes. You've inspired me to now, you know, new newer to Minneapolis. I'm I I I need to go look for my way to to get involved with young women's groups. I did some in California, but I need to do it here because it matters mm-hmm. to me too. So thanks for, thanks for giving me, an, that's my action item coming up. <laughs> I love it. Happy to get, re- to be a reminder and, and hopefully for the others on the, you know, listening to just take the call to action too, because I think it's easy to talk about the problem. There's plenty of people that can sit here and say, it's hard to fundraise as a female or, you know, whatever that is. Right. And by the way, the statistics say you're right. I'll just throw it out there that statistics also show that in fortune 1000 companies with a female CEO, they delivered three times the return of S and P 500 companies led by men. So women can do it and do it well. So that's not a problem. Right. But like, we still have to be taking the time that like, if you're having a hard time doing it and then you get it done, help the next female entrepreneur or invest in their company if you've had a success, right? It's a lot harder to like actually address the problem than it is just to complain about it. Absolutely. We are, we don't have to be victims to this kind of, you know, these statistics, these statistics, we can actually go out there and do something and the change isn't going to happen overnight, but it's, it's much more empowering to be like, Hey, I'm doing something about this versus like sitting back and be like, this is happening to me and I'm complaining about it. So I love 
all the lesson or all the listeners out there today, take this as a call to action to think about something small that you can do in your community. That's what I'm personally gonna gonna do. And and Morgan, hold me. I want I want you to be my account accountability partner. So I will circle back. I love it. And tell you what I what I'm gonna do. So yeah. that that's also I good to like have that. somebody keep you accountable. Yeah. So I would love to hear what other people are gonna do from this podcast too. You, you know, go get out there and, and get involved. All right, so. The last statistic I don't want to gloss over, I do want to just mention is um, 2.7% of VC funding went to female-led companies. That to me is also a staggering statistic and just something that speaks to your experience in terms of, you know, there was no one that that looked like me in terms of who was providing the funding or just, I mean, well, to me, that's just frustrating. And again, I'm kind of like at a loss for words, like, what are your thoughts on on what we can do to change that? That might be different than what we just talked about. Yeah. I mean, I would put simply that I think putting your money where your mouth is, is probably the easiest way to impact that. And there are several female focused funds in various spaces, but basically are emphasizing, you know, diverse minority founders. Because by the way, I don't know what the statistic is. I should have looked it up, but I'm assuming that you seem to be not far off from minority founders too. So it's not just being female, but I think that, you know, really, even if it's something small, like there's a lot of funds and others around town and, and, you know, maybe we can share some of that information offline, but uh, that provide kind of low minimums. And, and even then, if you have more than a low minimum, like literally in the couple grand that you could participate. But I think that's one of the biggest things is like more money begets you know, more investment in women, which begets success. And when women are successful, they're going to pay it back to other women, right? So it, it is the cycle that we all kind of have to still take that call to action. I think it's the hardest part too, because, you know, you come around and you'll ask people for advice all the time and men, women, whoever, they're they're happy to give advice. And then when you really need dollars, which is what gets a lot of this moving, it's it's interesting. That's when you can really tell like who's in it and really willing to put themselves out there and, and who isn't. And in the instance you're, you know, you can afford to. Yeah. I, yeah. It, it's funny how much free advice there is out there, isn't it? And then when it comes down to it and, and somebody is actually like, look, I am serious. Like, will, will you fund my company in whatever way that is? It's a different conversation. So yes, we'll include some fair. It's worth saying not all companies should be funded, right? Like fair. people come to me all the time, <laughs> fair. female founder or not, that are like, hey, I have this cool idea. I'm not going to fund something that I don't believe in, nor should anyone you no. know, listening, right? But if you do really think it's a cool idea and you provided the advice or you did whatever you did, like see what you can do to help them monetarily too, because that's often the hardest part to get these things going. Yeah. Not every idea needs to be funded or is necessarily a good idea. And and that's, I think that's an important, important part too. Just, you know, woman led it or not, it's, it's also got to make good business sense. Okay. So just in closing, just, just a couple of just more general questions about women in tech. And thank you for sharing those statistics. I think that provide, that gave there's a lot of passion around those numbers that at least from my end. So yeah, thank like you for, for, for bringing those. And those are just excellent discussion points. Why is it important that we continue to talk about women in tech? We've probably covered it a little bit, but is there anything you would say is why do we need to keep discussing this? It's 2023 after all people. You know, in so long as I continue to be the only person in the room in a lot of these meetings, it means we still need to discuss it. And I think you said it earlier, but I believe it's only 15% of engineering jobs are held by women. Yeah. So like STEM is still, I think, the field where women are most underrepresented. And I think that 
if it was because women didn't want to do it or didn't, you know, chose to not do that, that would be different. But I don't believe that to be the case, in which case, until the problem is solved, like, we still need to be working on it. You know what I mean? Yep. 100%. I think you, you said it perfectly. We already talked about my other question is just something I, I ask most of my guests is just what is something listeners can do to ensure the success of women in tech? And I think that just goes back to our point about get involved in your communities. It starts with young women. How can you even, you know, how can more experienced women be mentors to, to young women in their careers or women that are in schools or in sports like you're doing? Is there anything else you would add to that? Um, you know, I'll selfishly mention that, you know, one of the models of the venture fund that I do is that it creates special purpose vehicles for each deal that it invests in. And so basically we have $5,000 minimums. And so now our fund doesn't have a mandate to only invest in other women, but of the four deals we've done thus far, uh, half have been women and three quarters have been a minority, right? So I think by the product of your networks, you're going to have a different lens for, and we are a female majority owned fund, which is also hard to find. So incredible. by looking for things like that, you can find, you know, kind of green grass, if you will, to water around that. So my one selfish little plug there as well. Love it. Well, how can listeners keep in touch with you, learn about you, get more information, right? How, sure. if somebody has a question or wants to reach out, where can we find you? Yeah. So LinkedIn. So Morgan Evans on LinkedIn. Otherwise the services firm, while I own it, don't run it, tends to be the, the hub and spoke model for a lot of what I do. So that's AVO, A-V-I-O, MedTech Consulting. And then the venture fund I mentioned should be people be interested is Engage Venture Partners. And that actually has a link and a call to action if you're interested in joining the fund. But yeah, overall, I would just say LinkedIn is probably the easiest. Awesome. We'll include the AVO MedTech. Uh-huh. Did I say that right? Now, when I looked at my right, I was like, wait, I'm second guessing myself. The AVO <laughs> Consulting link. And then we'll include your the, the Engage Venture Partners as well. Morgan, you're changing the world. And thank you for everything you're doing. Really, I, I think just hearing your story and just the focus and intention you have around what you do, why you do it, where you spend your time is just really inspiring. And and really, um, I, I just, I hope there's more women out there like you. I know there are, and you know, just thank you for being here and, and everything you do. I appreciate that. And, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention as well that, you know, I'm fortunate to have a great man behind me. So even if, even if you're a male listening to the podcast too, that doesn't mean there isn't ways to be supportive. And I wouldn't be able to do anything that I did without, you know, my husband, Matt, being so supportive and a great partner in it all too. So appreciate you the opportunity. And I very much have appreciated the discussion as well. Likewise. Until next time, thank you for being on the Everyday Entrepreneur Podcast, and I wish you all the success possible. Thank you, Morgan. Thank you. Are you curious if your business idea will actually work? Don't worry. I've got you. Your best business idea starts here at hollynoll.com slash free. Go to the link and download my free business action guide. In this guide, you'll map your skills and expertise to build a profitable business idea. You'll solidify an irresistible offer that turns contacts into clients. And you'll implement my step-by-step framework to quickly land your very first client. Thank you for joining me this week on the Everyday Entrepreneur Podcast. There are thousands of podcasts out there and you chose to be here with me. And for that, I am truly grateful to you. For more information on today's episode and this podcast, visit hollynoll.com slash podcast, where you can find links discussed in the shows and connect directly with my guests. 
Remember to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're at it, if you enjoyed today's show, share your rating on iTunes. Or if you'd rather tell a friend about the show, that would mean the world. And remember, check out my free business action guide at hollynoll.com slash free. Or for more business building tools, visit the consultant code on Instagram. Until next time, keep taking action to build your business.